We'll continue our classes through uh, this Capitol Hill course seminar on living as a church. And we're thinking about how to preserve God glorifying church unity. And today we come to the uh, topic of church discipline. Okay. So a central theme running through this class is the tension between two things. One is God's purpose for the church, that we should be sort of this manifestation of his glory on earth in his church, his pillar and buttress of truth. So that's one thing on the side of the tension. And another thing is the fact that we are sinful. God glorifying himself through his church and the fact that we are still sinners. So much of what we've been thinking through has been how sin-prone Christians can glorify God through their love and unity together. But there are times when sin attacks our church and those who fall under it don't repent. And those can be very difficult and fragile times for the community and unity of a church. But if we choose to ignore sin, or rather we could choose to ignore sin and allow that to threaten the distinctive calling of the church. On the other hand, we might act harshly and self-righteous destroying our unity. Fortunately, the Bible has shed wisdom and light on this issue where ours is lacking. So we refer to the Bible's approach as church discipline, a biblical response to unrepentant sin. And far from the perceptions of witch trials and scarlet letters, discipline is an inherently positive thing. It's commanded in scripture for our good. It means we care for each other by speaking the truth and love about our sin. And unfortunately, the world can so often sort of condescendingly smirk at the church's conduct in a way things like, well, he's a leader in the church, but he's worse than I am. Uh, Discipline is God's normal tool for preserving the reputation of his church and making it clear that Christ does not condone sin. Right, so if God overlooks sin, then he's doing harm to his own holy character, which is just. Right, if he just sweeps sin under a rug, then um, God's not God, essentially, because he's not just. If he's holy, he must be just. He must deal with sin. And he deals with sin also within the church. And he's given the church rules uh, by which to follow to deal with sin in the church. So the model for discipline in the church is discipline that our Heavenly Father exercises and he deals with sin in that way. Um, In the church, for uh, the believer, it's uh, a loving Heavenly Father disciplining those whom he loves, right, for their good, that they would share in his holiness, Hebrews 12 says. Um, And for those who do not uh, characterize uh, a believer, they are eventually excommunicated. So communion is we eat together, we dine together around the Lord's table. Excommunication is the opposite of that. Excommune, right? They're put out. But that is uh, a final step in church discipline. There's much more to church discipline than that. So first, the book of Hebrews tells us, for the Lord disciplines uh, the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. He chastises every son whom he receives. So the goal of discipline is actually our righteousness. Hebrews 12, 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, 
but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it, to those who have been trained by it. So this morning, we'll consider how the Bible instructs us to practice church discipline. And doing this will strengthen our unity as a church and it protects Christ's reputation. So we'll also think about how we as members bear responsibility to be involved in the discipline process. Now, before we go further, uh, let me define our terms here. So there are generally two kinds of church discipline. There's formative discipline and there's corrective discipline. So sometimes it's referred to organic discipline and corrective discipline. When we say church discipline, we generally think about uh, the second, which is that corrective discipline. So we think about the steps of Matthew 18. Um, but first, the organic discipline is much more common. Right? So when you hear somebody say church discipline, you probably automatically go to, and I, I do too, automatically go to excommunication. But there's, that's a final step in church discipline. There, there's much happening before that happens that's considered church discipline. It's just organic church discipline, and we'll talk about that. Um, so first, formative or organic discipline. This refers to leading people to maturity in Christ through positive instruction and teaching. For example, when the word is preached to us and we're con convicted, and when Christians encourage each other, that's formative discipline, right? So we see that in Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. Someone read this for us. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Okay, so encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. <clears throat> this is a form of organic discipline. And then Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Teaching and admonishing one another, another form of organic church discipline. So when we think about discipline, it can't only be in the category of like this rip in the church and you know people being put out of the church. That's not... Um, the only way we should think about discipline. When we're encouraging one another and counseling one another and coming alongside one another, it's organic discipline because we are disciples of Christ. So there's discipline happening, right? So think about it more in, in those terms. Formative discipline is important because God uses it to prevent the sin that would require corrective discipline, right? <clears throat> so what is corrective discipline? This involves correcting sin in a believer's life. Everything from privately confronting each other to formal excommunication. It's where we say, hey, Billy, I think you were wrong for saying that. Or even finally, according to Jesus' teaching, Mary, I know that you're claiming to be a Christian, but we have to treat you like a non-Christian because you won't stop lying or stealing or whatever it is. <clears throat> That's all corrective discipline, okay? So on your handout, Roman numeral three, the purpose of corrective discipline. 
So this morning, we'll concentrate on the second of these disciplines, corrective discipline. So heading three, why do we do it? Well, mainly because the Bible tells us to do it, to have corrective discipline. But it also gives us some specific goals in doing so. First, the good of the person disciplined is a goal in corrective discipline. So discipline is loving because it warns us and corrects our sin, and we profit from that. And for the person who's living in unrepentant sin, it clarifies that his actions don't support his profession of faith. Second, the good of other Christians as they see the serious nature of sin and its consequences. That's another goal of church discipline. The good of other Christians as they see the serious nature of sin and its consequences. Third, another goal, it's for the health of the church as a whole. So it stops sin that could lead to strife and conflict or confusion uh, for less mature Christians about what it means to follow Jesus. Fourth, another goal, the corporate witness of the church is a goal of church discipline or corrective discipline. Church discipline protects our corporate witness So people notice when there's a whole community of believers whose lives are different from the world. They can also discount our message when our behavior looks the same as the world around us with no distinction, right? So we are holy, we are set apart, but a part of that being set apart, part of that set-apartness is the fact that we uh, view sin differently and we address sin in the church, right? So in, in the world, in their corporate spaces or communal spaces, there's not a, they don't address sin the way the church does. Uh, God has given the church instructions for the purity of the bride of Christ. All right, so he's keeping the church pure and unstained from sin. And the issue, of course, is that we're all sinners. <laughs> we're all fallen. So we bring into the church our sin. Um, and the Lord graciously cares for his church by addressing the sin in his church, right? And it's, it's for our good, it's for our holiness, it's for our purity. So all four of these add up to the main goal of church discipline, which is to make known the excellencies of Christ, our Redeemer. Okay, Roman numeral four. How do we exercise church discipline? So we'll spend the rest of our time together talking about how we can exercise church discipline for the good of God's, of the good of the church and the glory of God. So to do that, we'll just walk through the questions you see uh, in your handout one by one. So <clears throat> what if someone sins against you? What if someone sins, sins against you? Now we're thinking about the local church uh, context. As, as uh, three classes ago, two or three classes ago, As I mentioned, our church governance, we believe that the authority within the local church is within that local church, right? Um, With the instruction of Christ, we believe that that's a biblical model for church governance. And so we're thinking about the local church here specifically. What if someone sins against you? Does that ever happen? Anybody ever sinned against you in church? Never. (laughs) So first, What do you do if a believer sins against you? How should you react? Do you blow up on them and threaten them? 
you wait till after service. <laughs> it's gonna get real. <laughs> no. You go on Facebook. Yeah, that seems to be you know the more effective route, right? <laughs> go on Facebook and just slander up and down their wall. No, we don't do that. Um, do we give them the silent treatment, right? So some people blow up and some people sort of cave in. Both are uh, wrong and, and sinful. Do you say something and uh, build resentment um, against that person? Do you not say something and build resentment against that person? That happens, right? We just sort of keep it in and we let it sort of fester as we've been talking about these past couple of classes and we become bitter, right? And Hebrews 12 says, let no root of bitterness build up. So we're supposed to yank that out um, early. <clears throat> well, what does Jesus say about what we should do? So turn to Matthew 18, 15, and 17. Matthew chapter 18, 15, and 17. Let me have someone read that for us nice and loud so everybody can hear. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But, he, but if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> so, step one. Someone sins against you, you go to the offender. So, we should first go and talk with the one who sinned against us. Um, we'll call that person the offender. <clears throat> if he won't listen, we're to take a few others. If he still refuses to listen, we should tell it to the church, which should expel him or put him out if he refuses to repent. Now, uh, let's consider this in a little more detail and think through it. Um, let's think about the first step. So in most cases, uh, that first conversation will resolve things, right? It's supposed to be a clarifying conversation. Someone says against you, you go to them, you hope that that resolves things and you deal with the issue then and there, whatever it is. And either that person will repent or, they, or, or you'll realize that you were mistaken. That's possible too, right? So how do we prepare for that conversation? First, we should pray for that person. Pray that God will grow them spiritually sanctifying them, that they would desire to know God more. And this actually softens your heart as you go to them or before you go to them. It gives you a more tender heart towards them as you prepare for that, that conversation, which is a good thing. Second, make sure that you have good cause to go to the offender. Some sins are objective, right? So after service, you know, I said hi to him and he punched me in the face. Right? We shouldn't be punching each other. Right? That's something that's clear. Others aren't so clear. Um, he's really prideful. Okay, we have to, what happened? You know, what was the situation? What was the context? It, it takes maybe a little more legwork to see what's going on there. It's not something that's so um, objective and easy to identify. We can talk to another believer about, that, about either of those uh, categories to get clarification. But the less objective 
a sin, the more we need to be ready to explain our concern. Right? It's going to be a little harder probably to go to someone and say, um, I think you know, you're someone who covets a lot. Um, they could be. You could be absolutely right. Um, but that's probably not as easy as, you know, after church last week, I saw you with this guy in the chokehold and you were punching him in the stomach. Like, those are two different, and I'm exaggerating, but it's to say that, you know, it's not always as easy. There's sort of a, a spectrum there. We're trying to identify if, it, um, if you should address this person over this thing. Um, <clears throat> I lost my place with my silly example. Um, okay, so <clears throat> don't go saying, you're proud, repent, or I'm going to tell it to the church. That's probably not how you want to start the conversation as you try to win your brother or sister um, in, in repentance. Rather, sister, based on our conversations over the past week or so, I really fear that you may be speaking out of pride. Do you think that would be true? Right, so it's a, a different way to approach the person. Because again, we are human beings. We, right, we're embodied souls. We have thoughts, feelings, affections. We're not just going and talking to a disposition paper, you're talking to a person, right? So we want to talk to them as they are human beings. And we're trying to win them. The goal isn't how many people we can excommunicate with in a year. The goal is to deal with sin in the church and how we approach that is very important. So this is a part also of our counseling each other. We're, we're a part of counseling each other. That doesn't only happen when someone comes in and they want to speak to one of the pastors for counseling. Every Lord's Day, I'm pretty sure each of you in some way is counseling each other. Someone comes and says, hey, you know, how's it going? Oh, it's going pretty good. Well, actually not so good. I had a terrible week. You know, this and this happened. And that door is open. And at that moment, you're probably counseling them. It doesn't have to be, you know, you don't have to have a master's in counseling. You're just, you're giving an edifying word to your brother and sister. Um, you're counseling them. Um, and so... The approach is not, as we think about discipline and calling someone to repent, the approach is not accusatory. It's supposed to be careful and discerning, right? Careful and discerning. One of my favorite passages, <clears throat> did you have a? Yeah, Go because, for it. Um, I think um, Jesus is dealing here with um, not, not only to resolve the, the problem here, but um, also to to deal with us, the one who has been offended, in humbling us. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's not, you know, you're, you're the one that's been offended. Right. Sin against, and he tells us to right. go to them. To go. So, yeah, amen. Yeah, it absolutely. Takes a lot of, <laughs> you got to be humble. On both ends. Yep. The, the other thing I, I, I'm thinking since I, I came to the class is um, we, we always speak of this, um, issue um, with, within the church and the brethren, but it's, I think it's very, very difficult in our house. <clears throat> with our spouse, with our children, it's yeah. very, very... Yeah. yeah, it can be harder it's there harder. than it is. Yeah. yeah, I don't know why, but... <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> I think I know why. Sin! <laughs> but no, that's a good point. That's a good point. But yeah, so there, there's absolutely sin in our homes that we need to deal with and work through. 
but we're thinking about the local church specifically because Matthew yeah, 18 yeah, yeah. is giving this instruction to the church. So, but that's absolutely true. Um, it can be easier at home to get in the pattern of just overlooking sin. Yeah. But um, one of my favorite passages, Proverbs 20, verse five. Can you guys see this from over here? That much, but that's okay. Great, thank you. I don't know if that helps. Um, the purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. It's not always easy to discern what's going on with a person. Um, and we have to be patient and discerning, praying for wisdom and care as we try and draw out what's going on in a person's head and heart. Um, we want to be skillful surgeons, not people with sledgehammers just swinging it around at everybody. We want to be wise and skillful and discerning as we talk to people and try and draw out what's going on. So you're gently trying to take their chins and turn it in the direction of this sin that they may not be seeing, right? <clears throat> we don't want to get them in a the headlock and say, look at what you did. We want to gently turn them Clearly, firmly, but gently turn their chins in the direction of sin that they may not be seeing. It may be a blind spot for them. Um, third, <clears throat> examine your own heart. We're thinking about as you go to the person or before you go to the person. Examine your own heart to make sure your motives are right. Make sure that you're not going to the offender out of anger, revenge, an attitude of superiority, or some other sinful attitude. I would see that in Romans 12:19. Make sure your desire is reconciliation of the relationship for the good of both the offender and yourself and for God's glory. As Jesus says, confess your own sin first, <clears throat> and then you'll be able to see more clearly the plank in your brother's eye or your brother's Can I sin. Share, I don't know if you are already going to share it, but so when you were speaking, the one that came into my mind was the wisdom that the prophet Nathan had. And mm. being able to get David to recognize his sin. He yeah. just call him out as an adulterer right away. But he, you know, gave him this story analogy. Right. And then, you know, yeah. and, you know, and showed him that his own heart saw that he was guilty. Yeah, so much so where David was like, kill him. <laughs> like, get him. Just his wisdom and the way he navigated that, just wisdom from above, you know, to, to, to allow him to see that skillful, <clears throat> wise, and yeah, it doesn't always have to be, you know, this sort of blunt force trauma approach, but it ought to be more of a gentle approach because you want to win the brother or sister. You want them to see their sin. You don't want to overlook their sin, but you want to win them and you want to call them, call them back. So that's good. <clears throat> um, fourth, be very careful talking to others about this person's sin. <clears throat> Um, you see here that Jesus uh, goes on to say, talk to, in Matthew 18, talk to them, <clears throat> the, the person who's offended you. Not your best friend, not the offender's wife, talk to them. So it's fine to seek counsel on how to have that conversation if you need counsel, that's fine. But be very careful that that conversation doesn't become gossip. And that can be very easy to do. Um, sort of toting that line when you're sort of vaguely trying to, you know, rightly represent the person's character. Um, we just want to get counsel about it. It can be very easy to uh, try and uh, win 
the person who's talking to you over to your side by misrepresenting the person or making it seem like your wisdom is inscrutable in <laughs> this argument. Um, that's usually not the case. Uh, there's usually sin on, on both ends. <clears throat> so again, talk to them <clears throat> and be careful if you do seek counsel, counsel not to let that turn into gossip. And remember that even when you need counsel from another person, you can almost always get advice from another person without mentioning the name of the offender. <clears throat> Finally, when you talk to the offender, remember to act and speak in a spirit of gentleness, humility, and love. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but what? A harsh word stirs up anger, right? <clears throat> we want to avoid that. All these things will make the step of approaching the offender more effective and preserve and protect the church's unity by avoiding obstacles such as pride and gossip. Now, before we move uh, to the next step in Matthew 18, let me make two points on this. <clears throat> First, you may be wondering, do you go to uh, this brother for every offense? Is, is what, what's worthy to go to the person to say, hey, you've, you've sinned against me? Um, I would imagine if we did that for everything, <laughs> we would actually never get anything done. We'd always be going to each other about our many offenses. So, uh, no, not every single thing. <clears throat> I love, co co love covers a multitude of sins. Proverbs says that good sense, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. So that's true, which it is. When should you go? Two questions to ask yourself to help you discern if you should go to this person. <clears throat> One, has the offense led to a broken relationship between you two? Does it come to mind frequently? Does it consistently make you feel different toward that person? Is it hard for you to forgive them? If the answer is yes to any of these, then you should probably go and talk to them. <clears throat> In gentleness and humility, but you should probably go. Two, what's the danger <clears throat> of, this, of the sin of the offender? Keep in mind what James 5 says. Whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. If the sin we're talking about is hindering this person's ability to reflect Christ and to have genuine fellowship with other believers, um, it, if it affects his uh, faithful witness in, a, in the world, it's a sign of probably larger struggles and uh, it could potentially lead to those things later. So should probably go. The second point I want to make in response to the question, <clears throat> when should I go, is that Jesus tells us to initiate a conversation whether we're the offender or the offended. Matthew 18 tells the wronged person to seek reconciliation. But Matthew 5, 23 to 24 says, if you think someone has something against you. And in other words, you're the offender, <clears throat> sorry, in other words, if you're the offender, then it's also your obligation to seek 
reconciliation. So if you know that someone has offended or you've offended someone, then you have the responsibility too to go, not just the person who's been um, offended, but the offender, right? You've, you know you've said something to somebody or, an, or you can sort of read in their body language that maybe what you just said was offensive to them or you were insensitive in some area. You should go, not just say, ah, well, they're just sensitive. They need to <laughs> grow up. You know, <clears throat> that's not a spirit of humility, right? We want to be humble as we even consider that our offenses against others. Um, Matthew 5 even says that if you're on your way to worship God and you remember your brother has something against you, you stop and you go and you be reconciled. That's one of the things that when you were asking, when do you go to someone and when you don't, if you're sitting in worship and you can't hear the sermon and you don't have freedom to sing and all you're sitting there is, you know that individual is in the sermon. Yeah. That, that's probably a red light right there. That Yeah. Yep. And just really practically thinking through this, I mean, that probably happens more than we are wanting to confess, mm -hmm. right? We're sitting in service, <clears throat> we're distracted, we're mad um, at our spouses. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> at our kids, you know, at somebody said something last week and you haven't seen them since last Lord's Day and you're just waiting for them to come and say they're sorry or whatever. Gathered in that congregation is a bunch of broken, fallen, sinful people. Yes, we come together and we got our nice blazers on and it's easy for us to be like, yeah, my week was okay, but it probably happens more than we're willing to admit. And if that, to your point, if that is the case where you're distracted, that's a great point, you're distracted from the sermon, you can't hear, you can't sing. Often the singing, hearing the confession of sin, the singing, the prayers, hopefully, Lord willing, it's chiseling away mm -hmm. at your hardened heart. And sometimes it happens that way to where you're like, I don't want to talk to this person. I don't want to see them. And you're sort of praying and Lord, help me, help me. And you're hardening and he's softening. You're hardening and he's softening. And and a lot of times through the singing and through the songs, through the prayers, you're softened and maybe, I don't know, during the meet and greet, you feel tender to go and talk to that person. Or you've in your heart genuinely forgiven them and you can, in good conscience, take the Lord's Supper and with the aim and the true genuine desire to go and, and talk to them and, and be reconciled. So I'm just, it's, it's not always <clears throat> so hard where you're there, you're hard, you can't participate, it doesn't, why are you even here? Hopefully the word is doing what it, what, what it does. And the prayers and the singing are doing God's, the spirits working in you. Um, and there are other times where you're just, you come, you know, the benediction happens and you feel the same way you did when you came in. And that happens too. Um, but Lord willing, God is working on our hearts. Um, so I don't know. I don't know how I got on that. But <laughs> um, all that to say, uh, prayerfully, the spirit's working in our hearts. Um, softening us as we this is a means of grace <laughs> for us as we come with our distractions with our 
um, confusion about our affections, our feelings, with our hardened hearts, hopefully we can come in and uh, the, the Lord is working and chiseling and sanctifying us. That, that's a good thing. Um, but <clears throat> anyway, um, okay, so I'm just going to pick up where I left off, if this makes sense or not. That's why it's necessary <laughs> for us to examine our relationships with others before coming to the Lord's table. Okay, I'm, I'm where I should be. When there's conflict, both the offender and the one who's been wronged are supposed to initiate reconciliation. It's almost like we're tripping over each other, rushing to reconcile. <laughs> sometimes that characterizes us, sometimes it doesn't, but it should. Nicole? Oh, um, I, um, sorry, I'll put it up and turn it back, but yes, absolutely. I, I um, <laughs> Sorry, I will be back here. Um, so I guess this is sort of a gray area um, if for me, just if maybe someone offended you or something and you've forgiven them, you know, at what point, um, you said question, part two here though, does this hinder his or her witness or community in our church or yeah. like what, you know, if you're like, oh, it's gone for me, you know, hmm. I mean, at what point, I know it's obviously ultimately wisdom. Say, do I drag it back up for yeah, that's a good question. I'm sure. That's a good question. And honestly, um, there's not a cookie cutter answer for that because it can be very complex. What is the situation? What's the nature of the relationship? You know, um, is there genuine forgiveness? Is the person just wanting to um, say they they not you, not but just deal with it. Yeah, yeah, not not deal with it. You know, um, it can be very complex. But I think a principle in general so you said your question is how do I know if I've forgiven this person do I just leave it <clears throat> or how do I know that I should bring it back up um, I think if you for if you if you have forgiven them then yes you've you've pardoned them so to speak you've forgiven them and you leave it I'm assuming it comes back up if the person continues to do it is that sort of along those lines so this person they say, I'm sorry, they slap you again. They say, I'm sorry, they slap you again. Um, you've forgiven them, but do you just continue to let this happen? I would say no. Um, I would say you go to the person <clears throat> and you tell them, and even, even though you have forgiven them, I think you can still take someone else or move through the steps of Matthew 18, even if you have forgiven them. Um, some would disagree with that, but I think you can. I think you can have genuine forgiveness because your care is not, it's for your relationship, but it's also for this person and their own character and growth in Christ and wider for the church. So I think if there is uh, sin there, you can say, I forgive this person, I pardon them, but you care for them too. And you care for the, the holiness of the local church. And so I think you can and should at times walk through Matthew 18, um, even as you carry a forgiving heart with you. George? I believe it's in Hebrews where it says, when possible, uh, when it's, a, it's a loose translation, sorry, but... Uh, as much as that depends on you. Be at peace when possible. Yeah. So it's acknowledging that it's not going to be possible at peace with everybody. Right. And as long as it pertains to me, that I've made that effort to, to seek that peace. Right. But to know when... Be at peace now. Yeah. You've made your you've made your effort. 
and you've trusted God with it, you've prayed over it, you've, you've lovingly approached your brother, this is to be at peace. You've made your effort. So it's not going to be possible to be at peace with everybody. Yeah, not, not every relationship is going to have um, the, the reconciliation you desire um, relationally. You know, if someone does something, we were talking about this a few weeks ago um, after flock group one, one day. If someone does something that is um, heinous, we can think of a number of heinous sins that happen within the family um, or outside the family. If someone does something heinous um, to your child and you forgive them, you don't let that person babysit your child. You know, that, that's not wise, right? So again, it depends on the, the principle is and the command is we ought to forgive, we must forgive, and we have Matthew 18 as our rule book there. Um, but the way in which we walk through that, it takes wisdom, because it can be complex. It's, it's always not the exact same answer for the exact same situation. Okay? <clears throat> okay, Rusty, <laughs> quick. Yeah. Uh, so I, I'm thinking of a situation that happens frequently in churches. Uh, you've got person A is kind of loud and boisterous, yeah. laughs a lot maybe. Ooh. Person B is fairly reserved, doesn't talk very much. Yeah. And the two of them, you know, when they spend a lot of time together, uh, person B becomes um, distressed in just regular communication. I don't know. If the quiet person, person becomes distressed yeah, the talking to the outspoken. Okay. The boisterous person. Yeah. Um, those are two very common personality types. Um, yeah. Is, does this relate to this? Would they? If there's sin the there, <clears throat> yeah, if there's sin there, yeah. So there's, there are personality differences, right? You have people who are extroverted, people who are introverted, and the spectrum, you know, is wide there as well. But um, a person who is out, outspoken um, in conversation with a person, person who's not, them simply having two different personalities as they talk doesn't necessarily mean that there is in there, but there could be. And I think if there is, um, even if you're um, confused about, maybe you're just offended at something and um, you're confused about, should I be offended about this? Is this just me? Is this him? You know, whatever. Again, so back to step one, that clarifying conversation. So I think you go to them and you say, this is something that you said or did. And you, you probably didn't mean anything by it, but it did affect me in this way. Um, and allow for a clarifying conversation. Maybe they'll say, I'm so sorry, I didn't, I'm sorry. You know, I get that sometimes. It's, I'm working on that. You know, maybe they're repentant. Maybe they're very sympathetic. You know, maybe they're like, eh, you know, deal with it. This is who I am. <laughs> I think that clarifying conversation, step one, will help us to discern if we need to move further. But be willing to have that, that, that conversation, to give them the opportunity to um, you know, just rightly represent themselves. Maybe they said something or did something in passing that was not a, a good representation of their character. And when you have that conversation, you allow them to um, rightly represent themselves. And again, you care for the unity of your relationship and of the church as, as a whole. Okay. Desmond, that being said, can we talk after the meeting? After the meeting? Yes. <laughs> yes. I'm sorry. Whatever it was. <laughs> okay. 
No, this is good. Good conversation. I wish I had we had three hours to sit and talk through this because this is a I know something that people have a lot of thoughts and questions about. Um, but we can always talk after, you know. You can send send me an email or something, and we can talk about it. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, so um, step two. Now we're at taking one or two others. So Matthew 18, step two. So back to Matthew 18. If the offending person won't, if, if the offending person won't listen, and it is clear that sin has be, has been committed, we're to take one or two others with us. So this serves two purposes. First, the offender may more likely listen to a neutral third party than the person who's been sinned against. The other person also serves to witness what happened at this meeting, this interaction, in case discipline advances to the next step, right? So a few thoughts on this process if you ever find yourself at this stage. First, before you take this step, consider how objective, again, the sin is. Are you confronting them because you think that they are spending too much money or because you think that they're prideful? Well, only God truly knows that person's heart and intentions. Um, if this is a subjective issue, if it's a subjective issue like that, then it doesn't mean that you can't come alongside the person, the brother or sister, and talking with them through whatever the issue is, but it's probably better to pray that the spirit convict them. Um, it's not, again, we're, we're, we want to think about, is this objective? Um, should I go to them? Is this something that is subjective or is it absolutely sin? Um, <clears throat> and he may do that. Sorry, I lost my place. And, and it may be this person, if you do, if you are thinking through, okay, should I go, should I not go? Should I take this person? Um, it may be objectively sinful or it may be a great area that, you need more counsel on to discern if that's something that's objectively sinful. Again, we're, we're processing, reasoning people with thoughts and effects. We're, we're trying to work through these things, right? And it's not always as clear. Second, <clears throat> if you move forward to step two, make sure that the person or people you bring with you are trustworthy and discreet and partial and have good judgment. Do they have a track record of exercising wisdom? Or are they someone who they're very punchy and they'll just sort of further stir up stuff? You know, they come with gloves and say, you put on the blue gloves, you put on the red gloves, and they sit back with popcorn and eat. We don't want that type of third party with us. <clears throat> Third, let the offender know when you're, uh, what, what you're about to do. Don't spring a conversation on them without warning. Fourth, be careful not to try to lobby the witness to your side. Let's just let the facts be the facts and let them speak for themselves, okay? Step three. <clears throat> so step one, um, to go to the person. Step two, take someone else. Step three, tell it to the church. So moving on to step three, if the offender still refuses to listen, the church needs to be brought in. Let the elders know what's going on. And they, along with the church, can excommunicate him if he still refuses to repent. At the final stage, Jesus even uses those outside the church and Satan himself to providentially push towards repentance, hand them over to Satan. Even when he's put out of the church and handed over to Satan, the aim is repentance and reconciliation. Even then, it's repentance and reconciliation. Okay, um, what if you see a person 
sorry, what do you see a member sin against another member? So you're standing back, you're watching, you see something happen, what do you do? Well, Matthew 18 gives guidance about this. Um, what if you just observed sin against another person in church? The answer is, so what should you do in that case? The answer is, it depends. Galatians 6.1 tells us, work. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And then Luke 17.3 says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. On the other hand, the Bible also warns us not to be busybodies looking for opportunities to point out faults in others. All of us are sinners, and so it would be wise for us to um, give thought to that as opposed to unproductively sort of walking around the church looking for people who are doing something so you can catch them in the act and, you know, rebuke them. That's not the spirit we want to have either. So here are some guidelines to help us judge and discern what we should do here. First, is this sin bringing dishonor to God? Is it visible enough that it's lying about God to non-Christians? Second, is it hurting others by causing them to be tempted or by setting a bad example for younger Christians? Third, could it lead to discord or disunity in the church? And fourth, is it seriously harming the offender by damaging his own relationship with God or in other ways? If one or more uh, uh, of these questions, your answer is yes, then it would probably be appropriate to talk to the offender about the issue with wisdom, with discernment, and at times with counsel, because it's not always black and white or easy to discern. <clears throat> um, the less relationship you have with the person, the higher the bar is for talking to them. The better you know them and the more trust in your relationship, the lower the bar. Right? Okay, C, what if someone sins in a way that's heinous? Right? So back to the punching someone after service. How <clears throat> many, sorry, many recognizes this difference between the discipline in um, 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul tells the church to put the man out for sleeping with his father's wife, and Matthew 18, which we just looked at. So we won't read through 1 Corinthians 5, but um, it, it's a case where a man is sleeping with his father's wife, right? So heinous sin, we could categorize it like that. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul doesn't ask about the man's repentance. He simply says, put him out of the fellowship. So what's going on there? Is there some type of fast track to church discipline? <clears throat> what seems to be happening in 1 Corinthians 5 is that the sin was so heinous, so grievous, so beyond what was acceptable in that society even, that there's really nothing the man could say to convince the church of his repentance while remaining a member. Paul just says, put him out of the, of the church. Generally, we follow the principle of innocent until proven guilty. You stay inside the church until through the steps of Matthew 18, it becomes evident that you're not repentant. But sometimes the credibility of any claim to repentance is so shot that the church should move very quickly and move towards putting the person out of the fellowship, both for your good and the reputation of Christ. So <clears throat> someone, a member in good standing, 
shoots another member in good standing, <clears throat> right? Um, that person dies or they're in the hospital on you know, critical care. That needs to be dealt with rapidly, right? Um, uh, a situation, where, I don't know, maybe a husband is um, beating his wife and she comes to church black and blue or the wife is beating her husband and he comes to church black and blue, that happens. Um, that needs to be dealt with rapidly, right? Um, so those are, again, they may be, seem like they're extremes, but those need to be dealt with rapidly. Um, okay, <clears throat> all right, so I'm jumping down to um, 4D. Got a few more pages here. Um, how do I relate to someone who's been excommunicated? How do I relate to someone who's been excommunicated? Many times, this will not be an issue because the individual has moved to another area, they go to another church, um, they no longer associate with the church or its members. But there have been several examples where um, someone has been put out of the church and we run across that, that person. Um, what should we do then? What, what do we want to happen in that situation? Right? We want him to be constantly hearing God's word and we want them to be convicted of sin. But what if that person also starts showing up to uh, sort of social events, uh, dinners? What then? How do you interact with someone that your church has excommunicated? Um, I should say again that there have been abuses, right? So we want to think through this biblically. The, the abuses shouldn't um, set the stage or determine how we think about this. We recognize that those are abuses and we keep them in the category as unbiblical, but we're thinking about biblical church discipline here. So in 1 Corinthians 5.11, we read that we should not associate with any such person. In Matthew 18.17, Jesus says to treat the person as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So what does that look like in practice? What'd you say? Once a year. Once a year. <laughs> Take it easy, we have tax collectors. <laughs> All right, so what does it mean, but what does this look like in practice? It means that we should treat the individual as he's an unbeliever, he or she is an unbeliever, but not just an, an any unbeliever, an unbeliever who unfortunately thinks he's okay, right? So we should encourage him to attend church, and which is good um, and we should act lovingly and kindly towards him and encourage him to repent but we should never simply act simply interact casually as if nothing is wrong like we might do another Christian or even a non-Christian who knows he's a non-Christian so this person is uh, an unbeliever they've characterized themselves by their life as not consistent with their profession they've been by legitimate sin, let's just assume that this is a legitimate case of excommunication, they've been put out of the church, by the church, and we see them, and they say, hey, let's go, and I hate getting specific because I don't want to you know, put unnecessary parameters on stuff, but hypothetically, they say, hey, let's, let's go to the movies. You want to hang out and go to the movies? Um, you... <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> it depends on the movie. No, but I would say you probably, if it's you and this person and they want to interact in a way that 
assumes that they're okay and sweeps it under a rug, you probably shouldn't go. You probably shouldn't. I would encourage them to um, repent. I would invite them to church. But I don't want to um, come alongside their self-deception if they haven't repented and been reconciled to the church, which will be evident, right? So they've come and they've talked and they've worked through things and they've reconciled. But if they're assuming that they're okay and the church with the authority of Christ has put them out, then I think we should interact with them differently and not just have casual interaction as if we would um, a believer or again, even a per- an unbeliever who knows that they're an unbeliever. Those are, I think, different categories. Um, <clears throat> okay. But if you can think of another specific situation, feel free to come talk to me. That's fine. Um, okay, 4E. What if a church leader sins? Oh, we're over. What if a church leader sins? Um, okay, I'll just say something quick about this and then we'll, we'll close out. Um, the, the last topic I want to address is uh, church leader. So the guideline, guideline and passage for this is 1 Timothy 5, 19 to 20. So it says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that they may, um, so, so that the rest may stand in fear. So Paul gives a special caution to protect elders from illegitimate attacks. Before a discipline action against an elder can be brought, there must be two or three witnesses, um, which is a principle we see in the Old Testament. Uh, the wisdom of this is clear. Church leaders must, uh, um, must often engage in situations that may lead to um, unfounded accusations against themselves. But the passage in mind is to address how should we think through um, when a church leader has done some, some heinous sin. So first, uh, what if you hear rumors of an accusation against the leader? And then second, um, what if you encounter a church leader in sin? So I think I'll just, because we're over, summarize, summarize these. So on the principle of um, 1 Timothy 5, 12, um, if a church leader is in sin, we shouldn't think that um, we don't have any type of uh, say-so or the ability to say, hey, this brother's sinning. The uh, church leaders aren't immune to sin. There's not a barricade around us that says you can never approach a church leader if they're sinning. Of course you can. They're a brother. You should approach them. But the principles are the same. Is it subjective? Is it objective? Um, having that clarifying conversation is always uh, helpful, or m- most of the time it's helpful. If you can talk with that person and see how they were thinking through a thing, that church leader, you said this, and I was just unsure about what you meant when you said that. Allow for the clarifying conversation to happen. Just as we wouldn't want to <clears throat> just jump to assumptions and accuse of, of anybody else, we don't want to do that with church leaders as well. If you witness a church elder um, sinning, <clears throat> it may be wise to go to another church leader and say, hey, this is something um, I've seen or I've noticed or I've picked up on within this person as a pattern or whatever, or I witnessed this thing and talk with that other leader through it to, with you two, have maybe a clarifying conversation. Um, again, it's not always black and white. Different circumstances and situations uh, require the same principles, but the way they're worked through can be different. Um, 
But church leaders are not immune to um, sin and being addressed. Church leaders are held to a higher standard, so um, they should have less leeway, um, if I could put it that way. But that doesn't mean that they cannot be addressed. I do have a few pages to say about that, but I'm out of time, unfortunately. I didn't do that purposefully, so I didn't have to talk about church leaders. That wasn't a thing. Um, But if you have any other thoughts or um, whatnot, just come and talk to me after, okay? But I want to honor the time, so let me close out. Lord, I thank you for your kindness toward us. Thank you for your word, which is sufficient, um, that you haven't left the church to itself to try and work through um, these very difficult topics and issues but you have given us wisdom and the wisdom that is from above. So please guard our humility, uh, guard our unity in humility. Um, and Lord, may you sustain your church and her holiness for your glory and her good. In Christ's name, amen.